Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor Tim Barone at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Well, grace and peace to each of you in the name of Jesus, who is Lord over every authority. Amen. Uh, Let's open up to Romans chapter 11 today. Uh, We're continuing on in um, in our section of Romans talking about the disobedience of the Jewish people or the rejection of saving faith. Uh, large in part by the Israelite people, and what God is doing about that and how he feels about it. And so that's really what we're exploring today. So hear this word uh, beginning in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is God's holy word. Uh, So there's a question being asked in the text here, and I'd like to first ask it to you, and that is, how do you act if someone rejects you? If you offer something to someone, they say, no thanks, feel maybe a little slighted. Or if someone completely rejects your friendship, you feel wounded. Uh, Someone rejects you based on who you are or what you've done, you feel kind of slighted, right? And maybe you feel vengeful. Uh, That's a natural thing to maybe want... Uh, to pay back. How does God react? That's the question asked today. How does God react when he is rejected? That's what Paul's exploring, and I want you to see kind of three things, that when God is rejected, it really reveals his character. His character is shown in those who reject him and his response to that. 
And it shows us three things about our God. First, that our God never gives up. He never renounces his people or his promises. Second, he is a God who comforts those who are faithful. And third, he's a God who pulls out all the stops to save people. And so let's look at this. The first point is that our God is a God who never gives up on his people and his promises. And so let's look at the beginning of this text, Romans 11.1. 1. Paul just straight up asked the question. I asked then, has God rejected his people? Did he turn back and reject them because they rejected him? He says, by no means, right? And you might remember, this is Paul's strongest way of saying no. It's what he says when he, he asked the question, should we just keep going on sinning so that grace may abound in chapter 6? And he says, by no means. So here he says, no, it's unthinkable that God would reject his people that he foreknew and that he called. No. And then here's the proof that he offers. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul says, look at my own life, right? He's a Jew. He's a, a member of the covenant people. He is from Abraham. In fact, he names his tribe. I came from the tribe of Benjamin, he says. And Paul was what? Was Paul always a friend of God? A friend of the church? No, in fact, he tried to kill Christians, right? He tried to drag them into prison for preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and so Paul was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of the church, even though he bore the name of Israel. And yet God was merciful to him. God didn't forsake his promises to Paul. In fact, God graciously reached out, graciously confronted him, graciously brought him into his service and reinstated him as one of the true Israel. And so he offers him himself as a picture of God's mercy God didn't give up on Paul. Paul had given up on God and his words, but God never gave up on him. And this is all throughout the scripture. It's a character of God. When we say God is love, right? The Hebrew word for love is hesed, which is kind of fun to say. You can spit a little bit when you say it, chesed. But basically it's a long endurance and suffering in mercy. It's a love that never looks away you could say. And this is God's love. And he shows this all throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 94, it says this, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Or in Malachi, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Or in 2 Timothy, it says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful because his promises are good. His promises are true. And he never goes back. He never reneges on his promises. He never cancels out what he has said. Right? And so this is forever true of our God. That he never gives up on his people. You know, I've been thinking a lot uh, for the last several years about Jesus' words uh, in the Beatitudes, or his Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells us not to swear. He says, don't swear by heaven because that's God's throne, or earth because that's God's footstool. He just says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything else than that comes from sin. And for a long time, I did not understand what that meant. I didn't really get it. But if you think about it, why? Why do we 
say vows as humans, right? Why do we stand up at our, our weddings and say vows? Or why do we stand up in confirmation services and say vows to God? Or why do we stand up when our kids are baptized and we say vows before God? Why do we say vows at all? The reason is because humans are the ones who break their promises, right? That's why. Jesus is pointing out that the reality of the human heart and the human sinful condition is that we are not faithful to our word. If we were, we would keep our promises even if it hurts us. And this is the great contrast between us and our God. We're the ones who break the promises. We're the ones who fail at our vows. But does God fail in the same way? No. God keeps his promises no matter what. God, who has put his name on you, will never cancel out his promise. We can break our promises to God. We can fail to receive what he has promised, but his promise is good forever. And he will even be hurt to keep his own promise. He will be wounded so that the promise stays true. And this is what he has done for us in Jesus. Right? Even when we broke our end of the bargain, he didn't. And he even said, look, I'll suffer and I'll die so that I can keep my end of the bargain and your end of the bargain. And you can be saved by faith. And so our God never will give up on us, never will give up on his people. His promises endure forever and his love endures forever. And so we see when the people of God reject the Christ, reject this word of faith, that doesn't mean that God has given up on them. He never will. Not until the last day, not until everything's finished, his arms will be held out to them forever that they might believe. Um, I've, I think I've told this story a few times, but it's pretty impactful for me, so I just keep telling it. <laughs> but when I was uh, learning to be a pastor and I was a vicar in the church, I was like an intern, um, I was called by my senior pastor and he said, hey, it was Christmas Eve, and he said, hey, there's a lady who needs to be visited at the hospital, and it's Christmas Eve, so guess who's going? <laughs> it's not me. So he sent me over to this hospital to do this visit, and I had no idea what was, I was getting into. Uh, he said the lady was not really connected to the church, but she had some record with the church. And so I went over to see her, and when I went in, I, I noticed uh, I walked into a room that was just chaotic, uh, that everything was kind of crazy in the room, that this lady was hysterical, and she almost needed to be sedated or tied down because she was so upset. Uh, and her, her grown children, her adult children were there trying to calm her down and console her. And basically, she was, knew that she was near to death. And she had been hiding this from her family for many years and hiding it from the doctors. And they finally found out, and the kids were there, and it was chaos. And she was afraid uh, that she was going to die and she was not ready to die. Right? So it was like a textbook situation to walk into uh, for a theologian in training. Uh, and her kids were trying desperately to console her. You know, Mom, you're a good person. You've done good things. You've lived a good life. You're okay. And she would have none of it. And finally, after they calmed down a little bit, I asked that the older kids would leave the room, and it was just me and her alone. And I talked to her for a few minutes, and I, I told her, if it was up to you or me, 
none of us would make it. Do you see? She was afraid that she had not done enough. And the truth was, she had not done enough. And so if she was depending on her works rather than grace, she really would be condemned. It's not enough. But I reminded her of the grace of God who came down and saved her in spite of her sins and completed that upon the cross. And she went from a woman who was hysterical and needing to be sedated to one who was filled with peace right in front of me. And suddenly she was filled with kindness and charity. She was complimenting me as, as if I was one of her grandchildren. And I'll never forget that change in her face when the gospel impacted her. It really encouraged me to continue to go and to be a pastor because it was so profound. But God didn't give up on her. Right? She had walked away from God for many years. She had hardened herself to God and his word. She had rejected what he had said. She had not worshipped. She had not received. She had said, I don't need any of that. For many, many years. And finally, it caught up to her. But God never renounced his promises over her life. They were good. And so as soon as that word pierced her heart and she heard the grace of God, those promises were still there for her and she received them by faith and was absolutely restored. And so God never gives up on his people. He never gives up on his promise. Here, Paul is saying God did not reject his people Israel, nor has he rejected you. Nor has he turned his back on you. Right? His promises are good. And they, if he has spoken promises over your life, they will never fail you. Yeah, you can be disingenuous towards your promises to God. You can turn your back on God as we often do. But he never does. And so just let that sink in in this moment. God will never renounce his promises to you. Is there any better source of security and comfort that you can think of in this world? No. God shows his character. When we reject him, he continues to be faithful to us. And we can hold on to that all our lives. Uh, the second character trait of God that's revealed when he is rejected is that he comforts those who, who are faithful. And so let's look at the rest of this text. Look what he, he cites. Verse 2, we'll start again. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed all your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. Here's what was going on, right? Uh, all the people of Israel, Queen Jezebel and the wicked king Ahab, they had killed the prophets and the priests of God. And they had torn down the worship of Israel and set up worship to a false god, Baal. And they had tried to exterminate all of the worship of the true God in Israel. They are very wicked. And they had killed all these people. And uh, there was a showdown that Elijah had just gone through with the, the prophets of Baal. He went up to Mount Carmel and he said, let's have a little contest to see who's the true God. We'll have two altars for burnt uh, uh, sacrifices. We'll set up two uh, beasts on them, and then whichever God can light that on fire is the true God without help. And so the prophets of Baal are wailing and shouting and cutting themselves and making a spectacle, 
And Baal never answers, right? Because Baal's a false deity. He's not there. So Baal never answers. And then as soon as Elijah calls out to the true God, uh, fire comes from heaven and just absolutely obliterates this thing, obliterates the sacrifice, destroys the altar. All of the water is gone that he had poured over it. And so the people there say, okay, Yahweh's God. Fair enough. We got it. And they end up killing all of the wicked prophets of Baal. And so there's this apparently this great victory. But as soon as uh, Elijah, the word of this, gets over to Jezebel, the queen, she says, I'm going to kill Elijah. What he has done to these prophets, I'm going to do to him. And so Elijah goes out and hides, and he gets super, super depressed. So depressed that he wants to die. He's like, I'm sick of this. And this is what he says. They've killed everyone, right? All of the prophets of God have been killed, and I'm the only one left. And they're going to try to kill me too. And so look at the comfort that God gives um, to Elijah. It's maybe not what we might expect. In verse 4, it says, What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've kept for myself 7,000. This is the comfort he gives to Elijah. And this is what Paul is saying to the rest of the people of Israel that he's trying to encourage. It says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. In other words, this is the comfort. Elijah, you are not alone. You are not alone. Um, God has preserved those who have trusted this promise. There are more like you out there. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And for us today, there is still a remnant of people who truly believe in the living God. And we are not alone either. Because a lot of times our complaint can be Elijah's complaint. I hear it a lot, you know. It's like, God, all of our youth are abandoning the church. You ever said that? Ever heard that? Um, you know, I, I experienced that in my own life. I grew up in a, in a Lutheran setting, Lutheran church. I had 20 kids in my Lutheran grade school. I could probably count on one hand or maybe just a few fingers how many of those kids are still in the faith, as far as I know. God, they've all abandoned us, right? They've all left. They've all gone away. Um, you can feel that way too. God, my, my family has rejected your words. They're rejecting your ways. They're rejecting your name and your worship. They're rejecting your people. God, it looks like the country doesn't like Christians anymore. It's not popular to be a Christian. It's not popular to say that what the Bible says is true and good and right. It's not popular anymore. And so, God, there's, they're all abandoning us, right? It's just me alone. I alone am left. We can feel this way. God, the church is just going down in flames. What is the comfort? The comfort is you are not alone. It might feel like it, it might seem like it, but you are not alone. Jesus has this comfort in the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke in particular. 
um, where the question is, what happens if we lose things for the gospel? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, any of you who have lost mother or father or son or daughter or lands or animals for my sake and for the gospel will not fail to receive it back a hundred times, both in this life and the life to come. If you've lost family or friends, children, because they've rejected the gospel, and you have lost it for the sake of the gospel, Jesus promises you'll, you'll gain it back, both in this life and the next. Where do you gain it back? God brings to you his people. He says, you are not alone. There are those all around you who don't bow the knee to the gods of this world and the tides of this time. They love God too. They bow to the true God and they belong to you. They are a gift from God. God has surrounded you with brothers and sisters who maybe don't share blood with you, but share the waters of baptism and share a future. That future is the resurrection and the life of the world to come. I think one of the great tragedies of our time as Christians is we don't see that gift and we don't celebrate that gift that God has gifted to us people in the church for all that we have lost, for all who have walked away. God surrounds us with those who are faithful and he says the same thing to us. You are not alone. And so don't give up. Hold the faith. Encourage others. Bind together and stand up tall because the true God is still with you and he has surrounded you with allies and friends, brothers and sisters. I think one of the most beautiful expressions of this is we just went down to the National Youth Gathering. Um, we sent about 30 people down there and you know I think of uh, the churches that went to this thing they're probably pretty small. The majority of churches maybe have uh, a handful of youth or maybe a dozen or so. We're, we're blessed to have many. Um, but, you know, these, these little rural churches, they maybe have three or four kids and one adult that went down. And you know what? They probably feel a lot of times, I'm alone. Right? It's just me. It's me against the world. And then you go down and you find there's 20,000 other youth singing and praising God and hearing his words and learning to trust in them. I remember the first time I went down to one of these things, I thought, this is crazy. There's like a whole army of people here. Now, those moments of seeing a glimpse of the, the reality that we are not alone, they don't last forever, do they? Maybe we see it. We see it on Sundays, right? But they don't last forever. But we need to take those moments where we see it and bring it into the rest of our lives and believe it, right? That you are not alone. God has not left you as a lone ranger out there to deal with it, but he has gathered us together with saints, with people who believe, and they are a great treasure, uh, a treasure that can bolster us and strengthen us. So let Jezebel scream all she wants, right? We are not alone. This comforts us. And finally, uh, we have a God who pulls out all the stops in order to save people. Um, let's look at verse 7. It says this, Well, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And here it's helpful to go back to chapter 9, verse 32, where he says, They were pursuing it not by faith, but by works. And so because they were pursuing it by works, they failed to obtain it 
whereas people who believe obtain it by grace. So Israel failed to obtain it. The elect obtained it. That means a, a subset of the Israel people obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And you might remember uh, last week I talked about the sun, that the sun both melts the snow and hardens the clay. Same sun. It's the same word of God. It comes and it has different effects on people. It, it melts some and it hardens others. And what Paul is saying here is that some rejected this word, rejected the work of the cross, rejected the word of Christ and faith, and they were hardened. So those who heard it and believed, accepted and rejoiced. We think of Nicodemus, right, who believed in Christ and rejoiced and even helped to bury him. Or uh, the, um, the tax collector, Matthew, who became a disciple of Jesus and was no longer hated but loved. But others heard it and rejected, right? So they were hardened. And so 8, it says this, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can, cannot see and bend their backs forever. Pretty serious words. But it seems that God eventually hardens people who reject him. And we need to remember the narrative of the Pharaoh to understand this. So Pharaoh, God came through Moses and said, let my people go. And he, he said this five times to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God and his word. The next time, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then God began to harden Pharaoh's heart. So first, after uh, Pharaoh rejected this word from God. Then, um, after much patience, then God finally hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we should take this seriously, right? It's a, there's a warning here, right? For those who reject God's word long enough, eventually he does harden. We don't know in every case. We know in the case of Pharaoh, and we know in the case here where Paul's describing Israel. We don't know in every case but we can say that God does harden people eventually. And what did he do to Pharaoh? He hardened Pharaoh so that he could raise him up and show his glory to all the earth. So essentially, he made an example out of him so that more in the world would know the God of Israel. And here, Paul is saying the same thing about the Jewish people. He's saying that they have taken the place of Pharaoh. So now you can understand why Paul was getting beat up every time he went to the synagogue, right? He's like, you guys are just like Pharaoh was. <laughs> Those are fighting words. <laughs> but that's what he's saying. He's saying God is hardening the Israelite people who have rejected uh, because they have rejected and he's using them for his purposes. Now that's the key. God will use anything for his purposes. So let's uh, look at the critical last section of this text in verse 11. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall, right? Is God pushing them over just to push them down? Is that what's going on? No, by no means. Once again, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There's a bit of a mystery here. 
But it seems that God sees the whole picture, right? And he says, okay, Israel's going to reject me, but through their rejection, who gets to come in? The Gentiles. The Gentiles are like, oh, grace by faith? You remember when Jesus went and hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes? What did the people of Israel say? What did the Sadducees and the Pharisees say? He eats with sinners. Are you, are you kidding me? This guy can't be righteous. He eats with sinners. But what did the, the Gentiles say? This guy eats with sinners. He eats with me. And Jesus says, many who are first will be last and last will be first. He's continually welcoming in people who will believe in him despite their sin rather than people who say, we don't need you because we don't have any sin. And so this is what he's doing. He let the Gentiles in. He let the sinners in, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. They're all in front of the people who rejected Jesus. And he's saying this is to make those people jealous. It's kind of like if you have kids and you're like, okay, I got this toy. You know, I bought this toy and I'm going to bring it home and I'm going to try to give it to the first kid. And the first kid says, I don't want that stupid toy. Okay, well, I'll give it to your brother. Now I want it. Same thing. It's like God knows our nature or something like that. And so God doesn't give up on his promises. He doesn't give up on his people. Right? He expands it. He continues. He comforts those who are being faithful and who are drawn to him and believe in him. But he also is changing the game and manipulating things so that more people might be saved. When the Jews rejected him, he brought in the Gentiles so that the Jews would be jealous so that they too would be brought in. Why is he hardening the Israelites? Right? It's not so he just can be mean and push them down. He's doing it because he's pulling out all the stops so that they might be saved. And this is the same thing he will do in your life. If he sees you walking away, if he sees you rejecting he will pull out all the stops. He will change the game. He'll mess around with your life. He'll bring you to tragedy and trial and difficulty. He'll bring you to every circumstance so that you might have an opportunity to believe and be saved for eternity. Right? He'll take out all the stops to save people. Such is our God. Even when he is rejected, he continues in creative love towards all people, and especially towards those uh, who he has called. So let's pray to him now. Oh God, how, how great is your wisdom towards us and how great is your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you'd continually open up our hearts and plant your word deep in our hearts so that we might believe. Help us, Lord, to take continued comfort in who you are and to walk with you all of our days. We pray for all those who have rejected you, Lord that by any means necessary, uh, you would bring them to their knees and to faith so that they too might be saved eternally. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.